Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel, chapter 31, verses 1 through 6, and continues in 2 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and 17 through 27. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Joshua. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Vivian. Well, again, good morning. I want to especially welcome you if you're new here to the Parks Church. Um, this is what we do at the parks, we preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we are making our way through 
uh, now, we can say it, uh, 2 Samuel. We finished 1 Samuel. We'll finish up uh, chapter 31, the very last chapter here. And really, when these were originally written, uh, they, they, were, they were one book, okay? And so they were one book. So we're really at the halfway point of studying uh, the book of Samuel, if you will. So First and Second Samuel in, in our uh, modern Bibles. And uh, uh, Lord willing, we are going to finish the study of Second Samuel uh, again, don't hold me to this, uh, by the end of summer. And so we're going to take, we're going to continue going through Second uh, Samuel uh, th- through the summer, and it is going to be just, again, a continued uh, great study. And we love the Word of God here at the Parks Church. Amen? And so you want to keep your Bibles open, or if you have your First, first and Second Samuel uh, study guide journal, keep that open, because although Vivian didn't read the whole text, uh, we're going to walk through many of the parts that she uh, didn't read to bring some clarity around what is going on here in this uh, very important chapter and chapters uh, of the book, First uh, and Second Samuel. And so um, this is the end, uh, not only of the book, but of uh, the life of Saul. Uh, Saul's life, as Vivian has read, has, has ended tragically, and that is uh, chapter 31. And uh, I, I want to spend a little time there, but, but the bulk of our time will be spent in, in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. Um, this end has been uh, prophesied about. It's been told about. If you've been journeying with us in 1 Samuel, it's no surprise that, that Saul's life comes to an end. Um, here in this form and in this fashion, even as recent as, I believe, in, in chapter uh, 28, right, where, where Samuel, who has passed away, who um, Saul, and seeking out what the Lord's plan is, will as Samuel comes back, if you will, from the dead in chapter 28 and tells Saul, you're going to die. You're going to die in battle. You're going to die, in fact, at the hands of the Philistines that he was so fearful about. And so we see uh, chapter 31 just telling the story of how that happened. There's this intense battle against Israel that, that Saul, let's give credit where credit is due, Saul is out leading and he is out fighting with his son Jonathan and all of his, his men, but the, the army of the Philistines is too strong and they overtake Saul and it says that they wound him incredibly bad and uh, Saul turns to his armor bearer because he doesn't want the, the loss of dignity to, to allow the Philistines to take him um, or, or even to kill him. He looks at his armor bearer. He says, hey, you take my life. And what does the armor bearer say? The armor bearer is like, I- I'm not going to do that. You're the anointed king of Israel. I'm not doing that, right? And so what does Saul have to do? What is, what is he forced to do? He's forced to take his own life. And, and it, if you look at it in, in chapter 31, this is verse, the end of verse 4 into beginning of verse 5. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So this is, this is where Saul loses his life. He takes his own life. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul had died or was dead, he fell upon his sword and died with him. So again, the emphasis I want to make here is that Saul died. Saul died right here, all right? If you don't believe it, Look at verse six. Thus Saul died. And his three sons and his armor bearer all on the same day. That includes Jonathan, his son, David's best friend. Thus Saul died. That is written in the Hebrew to give us pause. There's the end of Saul. The first king of Israel the king that the people of God, Israel, remember in chapter eight, called out for, give us a king like the nations. They got what they wanted. 
Thus Saul died. And the Philistines, really, the, 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 the rest of that chapter is about the Philistines and how they handled Saul's body. Interestingly, there is 1 uh, Chronicles 10, uh, verse 10, is kind of a simultaneous passage or a commentary on what's taking place here. It says this, And they, the Philistines, put his, Saul's armor, in the temple of their gods and fastened his head, Saul's head, in the temple of Dagon. What happened to Saul? That's what happened to Saul. His armor was taken and his head was fashioned in the temple of Dagon. Do you remember Dagon with the Philistines? I believe it was back in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Remember where the Lord, they, they, they bring the, the Ark of the Covenant, right? After a victory by the Philistines, right? Into the temple of Dagon. And what happens to Dagon? The Lord literally throws their God. This is the chief God of the Philistines. Fat, falls flat on its face, right? And like, it's almost this comical scene. Now, what do they do with Saul, right? The king of God's people. They bring him and put him in the temple of Dagon, I'm like, surely by now Dagon's not a thing after our Lord just embarrassed him, right? But this is what you need to see, that idolatry is hard to kill, right? Even when the Lord knocks down those idols, we have a way of setting them or propping them back up. And it says in, in verse 9 of chapter 31, look at this, and so they cut off his head, it describes all the things that I just read, and so the Philistines, they carried the good news to the house of their idols into their people, Look at it in verse 9 of your Bible. They carried the good news, the gospel. The Philistines carried their gospel. Now, you think that the gospel is only a Christian thing, only a, a, a word that the people of God use. No, the gospel was simply a word that meant good news, and a gospel message would go out by those who were victorious in battle. And let me tell you, the, the message, the gospel of the Philistines when they went out is this, is that we won and our God is greater than their God. That's what every military battle, it wasn't just physical, it was also spiritual. And that's what the Philistines are announcing, the good news. Good news is this, our God is supreme. Buckle up, right? Let me just stop down here for a moment and say there are always competing gospels in life. In our lives individually, in our lives corporately, and in our lives culturally. Think about some of the competing good newses in our culture. The good news that means, and what I mean by good news is this, that, that this is what's going to bring you victory. This is what victory looks like. This is what success looks like. Maybe it's the promotion of self, that gospel. Maybe it's the, the, the promotion of social works. Again, there's nothing wrong with social works. They're just not the good news, as we know the good news. The good news of success, the good news of influence, right? That's a big one in our culture. Influence, influence, influence. You see, here is the distinguishing thing about the gospel of Christianity, the good news of Christianity, that it is not attached to you or to me. The good news of Christianity is this, is that we have a God who sent his son to die for us and give his life as a ransom to us as a free gift. That is the announcement, that is the proclamation of the Christian gospel, right? So the Philistines are marching in the streets with their gospel. We're victorious, we're powerful, our God reigns supreme. The Christian gospel marches in the streets and goes, no, listen, we're sinners. We're broken, we're lost, but here is our good news that Jesus came to give his life for us. You see the distinguishing thing there? Now, again, this is, should help you be able to 
navigate and discern cultural gospels? Does it center on you or does it center on God? Listen, this is why we preach the way we do here at the Parks Church. This is why we, we endure through First and Second Samuel into the deep waters of these things so that we can know who God is. We can see him rightly, as Tessa said, even up here, so we can discern his voice. How can we discern the voice of God? We have to know God through his word. How can we understand the difference between the true gospel and a false gospel? We have to know the true gospel. And so the Philistines bring this false gospel. And I think this is also a place, as we wrap up 1 Samuel, where we must be warned about placing our hopes in human power. Israel had placed their hopes in this king, Saul. We cannot place our hopes in human power. Earthly power, better said. Presidents or prophets. Pastors or kings or CEOs or spouses or selves. And then we flip the page as we're meant to do. And I love the storytelling here in First and Second Samuel. You flip the page in chapter one, right? Saul's dead. What? Let's just say she didn't read uh, chapter one. What would you expect? And you hadn't read it before. What would you expect the next scene to be about? David taking the throne, right? Like now it's David's turn, the one who was anointed all those chapters ago. Now it is his turn. And oh, let me tell you, he's about to take the throne, but we have to go through chapter one. And so let me set the scene here for you. David is back in Ziklag, right? This is in the Philistine territory in Ziklag that was given to him while he was running through the wilderness. This has been a home base for him for about 18 months now. He is in that place, and remember, it was burned down by the Amalekites in the prior chapter, right? 30, 29, and 30. And uh, David goes and he defends and he brings back the spouses. He brings back the children. He's back at Ziklag. And wouldn't you know it, here comes a man. There's always a man who shows up, right? And the storyteller here uses, uses the phrase, uh, the young man that told him repeatedly in chapter one. The young man that told him, the young man that told him. And again, for us, we're like, Kyle, big deal. No, it's a big deal when it's written like this in the Hebrew because you're supposed to key in that something isn't quite right with this person who's coming and talking to David. And he's got a story to tell David. And the story he comes telling David is that Saul and Jonathan have died. But how have Saul and Jonathan died? We just went through chapter 31, and that was the way that Saul and Jonathan died. Now let's compare it with the messenger boy here, this Amalekite. You see, he shows up in the right way. Look at it in verse, this is verse 2. Behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. So when you see dirt on his head and his clothes torn, that for the original audience would have understood this man was in mourning. Something has happened. Someone has died. So he shows up filthy, clothes torn. And not only does he show up like a mourner, he shows up also as a worshiper, doesn't he? He falls flat down in front of David, paying homage to him. So this guy, to his credit, has the exterior correct. 
Now we're about to find out, does his interior match up with his exterior? His exterior would say something truthful going on, but what about his interior? And so David wisely has a list of questions for him. The first question David asks, it's in your text. He says, where'd you come from? He says, I escaped from Saul's camp. Okay, fair enough. Looks like that. Second question, how'd it go? If you escaped from Saul's camp, that means you were with Israel. You know that Israel was being attacked by the Philistines. David knows that. He was aware of that. He got sent home from that battle, right? And this young man looks back at David and he says, it's not good. Saul and Jonathan are dead. It's interesting that the question David asks, how did it go, is the same question that Eli asked in 1 Samuel chapter 4. When God's people go out to battle again, the Philistines, and they come back. Remember the Eli, the high priest, and he can't see, he's old. He said, how'd it go? And what do they say? They've taken the ark. And glory has departed. And the man has a similar response. The king is dead. And David, again, David has no idea what has happened to Saul until this moment. David asks him, how do you know that? How do you know that information? Because if David is not going to do one thing, it's something we've seen continually in this passage, he's not going to take matters into his own hands. He's not going to take the throne that he's been anointed to take by taking the crown himself. He wants to know that Saul is no longer alive. And this guy goes, well, you want to know how I know? Not only was I there, look at the text, but I personally killed Saul myself. This is in verse 9. And he tells this elaborate story of where he was and the chariots and the horsemen. Now, what if that is true? I don't know. I don't know how many chariots can get up on Mount Gilboa. It's a mountain, right? And he gives this story about how Saul was there beside him. In verse 10, he said, I stood beside him and killed Saul because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And then he goes, and I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. So David, I think, is discerning at this moment. Something's not quite right. Maybe for David, maybe he's believing the story, but there's a tone. There's a way in which he's telling the story that seems off. That his tone, the sequence of events, are not matching the exterior mourning, are not matching the exterior of worship. His external and his internal are in two different places. That is a warning, church. That maybe the external demonstration, the external by your words, do not match the heart of where you really are before the Lord. Listen, when those two things are in incongruous places, that's a scary place to be. And I believe that David is recognizing that in this messenger. You see, this we know is a lie by the Amalekite. 
Remember how I said three times it said that Saul died, Saul died, Saul died. Remember that in chapter 31? We know how Saul died. By his own sword. This guy was going, I killed Saul, I took his life, I mercifully intervened. And here's the evidence that I killed Saul. His crown and his armlet. And David, wouldn't you know, I brought them here for you. Maybe, for those of you who are discerning in the text here, you might be asking the question, okay, if this guy didn't kill Saul, how did he get those items? How did he get the king's crown in the armlet? There are two very likely possibilities. The first one, being an Amalekite, he could have stole them. He could have stole them. He could have went into a camp late at night. He could have done something like that when they took his body away. He could have, could have stole them. The second thing, is he paid for them. He paid someone to give him the crown in the armlet. Either way, however he got these two items, the motive of this man was to, to have something in return for giving these items to David. Do you see that? That his motive in coming before David is not to bring the information about Saul, is not to bring the information about, about Jonathan. He's lying about it all. His job in this is, his, his whole goal in this is to absolutely 100% be served. A self-serving mission for this Amalekite. And I think we see this in verses 11 and 12, David's response to seeing the crown and armlet of Saul from this, this worshiper. I think he really believes that David is going to take those and place them on his head and put them on his arm and go, finally, I can stop running. Finally, I can get out of the wilderness. I can leave where I'm at with the Philistines and go into Israel and take my rightful place. I genuinely believe that this man thought he was going to be applauded and rewarded back. But what do you see, David, when he sees the crown, when he sees the armlet? It throws him into what? Lament. David, it says, rips his clothes. He begins to weep. And I have to think that this messenger, this Amalekite is going, that's not the reaction I thought. I expected something different here. But David responds 100% appropriately here. God's king has just died. His best friend has died. I believe this messenger expected David to breathe a sigh of relief. A sigh going, okay, this is finally the open door I needed. This is finally the door that has been opened to me by God to be enthroned publicly and finally take my place as king, which David will do. But instead of celebration... This messenger was not met with that applause, cheer, or financial reward. This messenger was met with what was rightfully his. And David, at this point, having heard this Amalekite killed Saul. Again, this is a lie, y'all. David asks the final question in verse 14. How is it that you were not afraid to kill the anointed? He looks back at this man and goes, who are you to lay your hand on God's anointed? Do you remember David? How many opportunities he had, particularly the one in the cave, where he could have taken 
Saul's life from him, right? And what does David say repeatedly? I'm not going to lay my hands on the anointed. I'm not taking the throne by that way. I'll take the throne when God gives it to me in his sovereign plan. But I'm not inserting myself. And this is David going, who are you to insert yourself in God's sovereign plan? Again, remember, this is a lie. This is a lie that cost him his life. Now, two things from this story. Very real things, very practical things, because some of you are going, how does this story intersect with where I am right now, Kyle? What, what difference does this make? Like, Kyle, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting story. But how does it intersect right now in 2023? I think the Amalekite failed to see two things that we often fail to see in life. The Amalekite Amalekite failed first, and this is from Eugene Peterson. He said, the Amalekite failed to see that David was a theologian. Eugene puts it like this. What the Amalekite has not counted on is that David is a theologian. A theologian acquires the habit of looking at people and circumstances with an eye for what God is doing. That's how David was looking at this man with this news presented before him. The Amalekite saw an opportunity to acquire honor in a new kingdom. He saw an opportunity for material gain. That was, you want to know what the Amalekite's theology was? There it was. Self-serving. How do I get ahead? How do I find my place and position myself in this kingdom? The Amalekite in this scene represents the person who is looking at everyone else in every situation as a means to self-promotion. And put that slide up there because I think it's an important point here. The Amalekite is self-serving, self-promoting, and deeply mistaken. Deeply mistaken, as you'll see, about how the kingdom's ethics work. Some of you are deeply mistaken on how the ethics in the kingdom of God work. Some of you are living your lives like the Amalekite, if you will, looking at every person, every situation, every opportunity as how it can best serve you and your interest. How it can best build you up, how it can best build up the kingdom you're really about, which is the kingdom of self. You see, those kind of people, unlike theologians, have no concern for God's sovereignty, no sense of God's hiddenness in ordinary events. David, being a theologian, is well aware. You say, theologian, Kyle, that's like pastors and that's like, no, 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 listen. And this is that famous quote, right? We're all theologians. All of us have a theology of something or someone. But what we see from David in this text is that his theology is spot on and he's connecting it now with this moment, with this Amalekite before him. Some of it is you guys need to know the history of the Amalekites like David did, dating all the way back to the Exodus and how they affected God's people. That the Amalekites have a long history of harassing God's people and interfering with God's purposes and David spots it once again right now with this one. 
The Amalekites have a way of showing up at holy places and at opportune times to serve themselves. And David, through his discerning eye, through his theological heart and lens, goes, I see what's going on here. I understand what's taking place here. So the first failure was to see David as a theologian. The second, the Amalekite failed to see the character of David or the heart of David, right? The Amalekite expected to set off a victory celebration with his report to David. Instead, it sets off the appropriate response, which reveals David's character of lament. Let us not fail, that, uh, fail to understand that this David is the same David who it says is a man after God's own heart, meaning that this David mirrors the heart and character of our God. Now, the best place to interpret Scripture is where, church? Scripture, right? Scripture interprets Scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Look at this. David is retelling this scene with this messenger, and he says this. I believe we have seconds. And when one told me, right? When this messenger told me, David says, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news. Wait a minute. There those words are again. He thought he was bringing me the gospel. He thought he was bringing me good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Make no mistake about it. David understands the motive of this man. He failed to take into account the character of David, the character of David, which was about the heart of God, the mission of God. Listen, this man came with a false gospel and David goes, I saw it, I smelled it out and I gave him what he deserved because he laid his hands on the anointed. Which again was a lie. That should be a warning in of itself. And then verses 17 through 27 is this lament. And I had Vivian read it all because I'm not going to go through the whole lament. I'm not going to go through this, this poem. But the eloquence of David's poem and his lament invite us to linger. Invite us to linger in the loss that has actually taken place. It gives us a snapshot of David's true character and his true heart. That in this poem, in this lament, what I hope, and I hope you do read it, he honors God. David honors Saul. He honors him. We've been through a lot of weeks, like 50 weeks. And a lot of those have been Saul doing what to David? Trying to kill him. But here at the end, David's character and his heart that mirrors the character and heart of God shines through. And he honors Saul. And he gives language to this event. And the reality of death in the reality of pain and loss. David, in this poem, in this lament, it shows us also that lamenting isn't just a personal act. It is personal, but it's also social. It's corporate together. Mark Vregop wrote a great book on lamenting. Read it. It's called uh, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. He says this, he says that lament is a divinely given liturgy for processing our pain so that we can rejoice. 
Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It is not only how Christians grieve, it's the way Christians praise God through their sorrows. Lament is a pathway to praise when life gets hard. Have you been there? Like, are you there? If you open your Christian Bible, you'll see we have a whole book called Lamentations. We have a book called the Psalms, which are full of people. David himself lamenting, being honest, crying out before the Lord, bearing his heart. But listen, lamenting gives way to hope. Lamenting is only as powerful as the confidence and hope that you have a God who will resolve this eventually. And what I mean by this is all of the brokenness. Listen, Christian, it is very right and worshipful for you to bring your heaviness and pain before the Lord. Now, I'm I'm talking differently than confession and repentance. I'm talking about lamentation. Those places where you go, Lord, I am hurting because I'm confused by this relationship or by this loss in my life. Lord, my heart is heavy because I can't bear children, and you know I desire. Lord, my heart aches because I didn't have a father in my life who would show me the ways of God. Listen, lamenting is part of our faith because it's a faith-filled step of going, Lord, I trust you in all spheres of my life. And in fact, this practice is not just about therapy, but it's about the truth of God washing over us. Now hear me, lamenting is not about complaining. Very fine line here. Now some laments will be your heart complaining before the Lord, right? But you have to hear, here's the deal. When we lament, our hearts are also open to the comfort and correction of the Lord. So here's what I found in my life. When I lament honestly before the Lord, there are times where I will give voice to things that the Lord has to correct me in. There'll be often times where I'm not lamenting. I think I'm lamenting and I'm actually just complaining. And the Holy Spirit will be like, Kyle, you're complaining. You see, there is complaint in lament, but it is movement past. Notice that David laments and he still takes the throne next. It's not just sitting in his lament. You say, how long do I lament? I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. I think the Lord purposely doesn't give us, okay, three days, then four, then five. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I do know this, that the movement is through lament to the other side where the Lord heals and meets you there. Lamenting also, and this is where I want to end, um, has a way of humanizing people and things. We live in a society and a culture that has a way of dehumanizing everyone. True? People are sound bites. People are this. People are that. Where people are treated as objects or commodities. Only as valuable to us as their perceived usefulness. You know whose theology that is? The Amalekite. The Amalekite, in a very real sense, in him coming to David and the way he came to David, dehumanized Saul. 
I'm using him to get what I want. He dehumanized Jonathan. He dehumanized, if you will, death itself. And here David brings back the humanity in loss via lament. David is going, they were part of the family. That was God's anointed king. Jonathan was my best friend. He saw them for who they were. In church, who I pray we see people for who they are, image bearers, Genesis 1. All carrying the image of God with value and dignity. You see, our whole journey here in First and Second Samuel will be about heading to one place, as is the whole journey in all of Scripture. And that's heading to the place of Jesus. Heading to the true king. The one who fulfills all of this character that David is putting on display. It's a shadow. You're going to see David's character fail in a couple weeks. You're going to see it rise in a couple weeks. You're going to see it again fail. Because all of this is a shadow pointing to the one true king. The one true king who is the king of a different kind of kingdom. And so listen, I want to back up to those two points of being a theologian and carrying the character of our king. Some of you have misidentified and take mistaken maybe, maybe views on the character of our king. And I'm not talking about David. I'm talking about Jesus. You see, the character of our king in the kingdom of God, his character is one of grace, of mercy, and of love. And some of you are going, amen, that's right. And others of you are going, hold on, Kyle. What else? Well, here's the what else that you're looking for. When you actually believe that his character is grace, mercy, and love, here's what that does. That transforms your life that transforms the way in which you live in the kingdom. You now long to live in the kingdom to reflect the king's character itself. But for some of you, oh, you say, hey, I'll take the love, I'll take the grace and the mercy, therefore that means I can live however I want. Read Romans, right? Paul addresses that. You see, this is a transformative grace by a transformative king that when it collides with our heart, it absolutely reorients and changes the way we live in this kingdom. So the reality is you need to question very seriously if you're not living within these ethics of the character of our king, if you're actually in the right kingdom. You might be in the kingdom of self, you might be in the kingdom of religion, but you are not in the kingdom of God where Jesus is king. When you're in that kingdom, you will reflect his character. Don't be mistaken like this Amalekite. Don't be mistaken on the character of the king. But also it requires us something, right? Something else. What I've already said, to know and believe and trust in this king. Do you? Do you? And I, I mean more than just intellectualize it. I mean, do you in your heart of hearts? in a way that has actually wrecked you in the most beautiful ways. I've done us something that I've not done usually on Sunday mornings. Given us a little time. A little time just to sit with the Holy Spirit in light of this text. 
And I want you to grab your elements of communion. I'm going to join you, okay? It's one thing to know rightly. It's a whole nother thing to respond rightly to what you know. I think in this room, we have a lot of people who have the right knowledge who know the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of King Jesus. But maybe you haven't actually responded. Responded in a way that shows your allegiance to that king. That if you'd let the Holy Spirit in this moment do his work, he would illuminate those areas and those spaces and places that are not lived in line with the character of our King. The things you know to be true about Jesus. I'm talking about the biblical Jesus. For some of you, um, the dehumanizing isn't other people. It's yourself. It's you've lost sight that God has literally stamped his image upon you. The image of God. And what he offers to you in Christ is this free gift of salvation, this reconciliation, this freedom, this redemption. And he goes, because I love you. And you dehumanize yourself by going, no, God can't love me. No, and you have almost like this commodity view of yourself and God. Well, if I will just do better, if I'll just strive a little harder, if I'll just start this nonprofit, it will make up for those work where I've really, really failed. And God this morning is just trying to meet you in the place where you will understand his grace and his mercy like never before. He's trying to invite you into something so much deeper than you can possibly fathom. You see, that's what communion, when we take it week after week, is really about. It's about the invitation of Jesus to broken people. That there is a way for broken people to sit with him to be before the Father, but there's only one way, through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And for believers in this room, 
Some of you know that your lives are being lived out of order. One of the things I love about David is he was so convinced of the order of God above anything else, above expediency, above an easy way out. He was convinced that God knew best, that God's way, no matter how hard or difficult it may be walking through it, was the best way. For some of you, I'm not sure you're convinced of that. I'm not sure sometimes I believe that. Holy Spirit, lead our hearts in this moment where you want to take them. For some of us, it's a place of hope-filled lament. For others, it's confession and repentance. Father, show us the heart of your Son toward us. God, we're about to take communion, a tangible reminder of your love and cost for our salvation. Holy Spirit, for those lives being lived out of line with your kingdom, bring us back in by your grace and mercy. Forgive us where we have erred. Forgive us where we have trusted in our own selves, in our own kingdoms.